I punched it. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Harwell. You are listening to the Never Heard of It podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about a bunch of different movies, typically ones that, crazily enough, you've maybe never heard of. But right now we're continuing our series uh, looking at 1985, and we got two good movies for you today, and then this other guy who is shrouded in a cape tonight and a hood. Say hello, mystery man. Craig Moorhead. How you doing, Sean? Pretty good. How are you? I'm all right. I watched some movies this week. I'd like to talk about them. Well, which two movies did you watch? I watched Spies Like Us and Into the Night. That's crazy. Did you know that both of those were directed by John Landis? I do now. You do now? I knew it before, but I also know it now. Yeah, you would have known this if you listened to the Tea Up episode where we talk a lot about the sort of making of and people involved in these movies. So if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. And if you're new to the podcast welcome we don't care where you start we're just glad you're here Mm -hmm. right that's right that's right everyone is welcome come on in come on in the water is it's okay (laughs) that's right sean and i uh, record this sitting in a hot tub (laughs) every wednesday evening it gets real pruney it gets Mm. real pruney by the end of this super pruned go check out our website neverheardpodcast.com that's gonna take you everywhere you need to go. You can look at back episodes. You can check out posters. You can check out some reviews from guest writers that we've had. Lots of fun stuff. And then come say hello on Facebook and Twitter and all those places. So why don't you do that right now? We'll wait. These are our newly arrived surgeons, Doctors Trowbridge and Greenbaum. Doctor? 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 Doctor. 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 And doctor. Well, we miss anyone? Hey, Craig, let's talk about spies like us. Let's talk about it. I kind of want to start at the very end this week. (laughs) Novel. I mean, I'm talking about the very end, like the end credits. Oh, all right. Feature music, as we mentioned last week, by Paul McCartney, a song (laughs) conveniently titled Spies Like Us. And one yeah. of our listeners was giving me grief today because I said in the tee-up, you know, I, I didn't remember that there was a song by Paul McCartney called Spies Like Us, period, let alone in this movie that was, you know, 10th overall this year and made a ton of money that I remember seeing a bunch as a kid. And so I would just like to reiterate, <laughs> I was only eight years old at the time that this movie mm-hmm. came out. Mm-hmm. Now he tells me, mm. this nameless listener, mm. who, I, thank you for listening to the show, <laughs> that this song was a big sensation and was all over MTV. Do you recall that, Craig? I know you had MTV at your young Here's, age. You're, you're more hip to these things than I am, so come on, so let's set the record I, I am super hip, but a part of being hip means you're beyond what's going on at the time. Yeah, so I was well beyond MTV, and in fact, so beyond it that my folks didn't even have cable at our house. So... I didn't have MTV, but what I did have, Sean, is I had this song recorded on a tape off of the radio, and I listened to it a million trillion different times. Well, here's the second part of what I want to establish right up front is Mm -hmm. this song is terrible. It is not Mm -hmm. a good song. No, it's not. I had this argument that he was saying, well, no, it was cool then at the time, and it sounds like that's what you're saying to your young ears that you felt compelled to record this. And I would just like to make the claim that your ears at the time were wrong. 
and your ears now if you think this is a good song i'm not saying you craig anybody right your ears are also wrong right now because it's not good and i will never claim to be an aficionado of mr mccartney's obviously i know quite a bit of his catalog Mm -hmm. both with the beatles and wings etc oh the beatles that's right there's a million other songs that this man has done that are way, way better than this. So I don't even know why you'd bother to listen. Like, why would you listen to this song? Well, you know, Sean, opinions are like belly buttons. They're filled with mm-hmm. lint. Yeah. And they're pretty much useless. I don't know. But I'll say this. I think, and this is not to make excuses, a major attraction for me to this song is that it had to do with a movie. There's some other movie this year out of, out of 1985 that uh, uh, had a song called Power of Love. Can't remember the I can't remember the title of the movie, but uh, yeah. Power Love. I must have listened to that uh, way more twice as much as this one, you know, because it, mm-hmm. it was attached to a movie. It was attached to a movie, and when I heard the song, I would think about the movie. So I love that. I mean, listening to this song now, <sighs> I mean, you know, it's not like it's not even like mundane bad. It's not good. Uh, annoyingly it's not a good song. Bad, you right? can't get the whole way yeah. through it. You just kind of want it to stop. Uh, let me ask you this while we're yeah. on this subject in our music podcast that we're doing tonight. Um, <laughs> the Goonies song, uh, Cindy Lauper. Right. I mean, it wasn't like that wasn't like a big thing. Was it that song? Oh, yeah. That was a big one for me. Because seriously, again, it, it, was, it, was, it was the song of the Goonies. No. But, but yeah. that song, that's also a better song, though. That's a song that has a melody and a thing. Okay. I have no yeah. idea what the lyrics are to that song. <laughs> Goonies are good but enough. But like, that song's got, it's it's got something. It's got something. I, I'll argue, you know, in our next, in, a, in the other movie we're going to talk about, Into the Night, the song Into the Night, which is also not a great song, oh, it's but I would argue is it? a more listenable song than Spies Like Us. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, now that that's settled, mm-hmm. let's actually talk about the movie. And I'm going to just give the quick synopsis because I know a lot of people are familiar with this movie, but perhaps it's been a while since you've seen it. And there, you know, perhaps there are a few of you that have never seen this at all. So here we go. This is actually from IMDb, but it's lower down. It's in the storyline section. So it's Mm -hmm. slightly better than what you get at the top of the page for whatever reason. It's probably because it's user generated. Two low level government employees, Emmett Fitzhume, played by Chevy Chase. And Austin Milbarge, played by Dan Aykroyd, which those are great names, by the way. Great names. Just good comedy names, solid. Are chosen for a top secret CIA mission. They are unsuitable as CIA agents, but are deliberately chosen for this reason as their mission is a decoy one, and they are expendable. After being fast-tracked through training, they are parachuted into Pakistan, where all manner of adventures await them. So that was written by a user named Grant Assess. Thank you, Grant SSS. I think it's S- Grants. Grants. Yeah. Well, Grants, you did a good job there. I think mm-hmm. that is a fair assessment of what this plot is. Basically, you got two uh, unlikely government low-level employees in various capacities thrust into foreign service uh, as spies, so they think. Mm-hmm. And I guess technically speaking, they are. But their mission is of no importance whatsoever other than to distract from the real spies who are trying to get into Russia because Russia is bad and there is a missile involved. (laughs) Craig, clearly you love this movie enough to have recorded the theme song on cassette. Yeah. We both saw it a bunch as a kid, as kids, not as one kid. 
Oh. Uh, <laughs> That's one <laughs> united child. That would be very weird. I didn't know mm-hmm. you then. Mm-hmm. What do you think about spies like us watching it 32 years later? Well, I'll be honest with you. I never particularly loved this movie outside of it being a movie. You got low standards right there, huh? It's pretty. As a kid, it was pretty low standards. You got to imagine how excited I was when a movie was good. Yeah, wow. Because I just I wanted to watch any movie, but it, it was never my favorite. It's got it's got some really good bits in it, mm-hmm. like some real good some good chuckles. But I gotta say, this one, and I never like going in. I knew that. Like I always had this lukewarm okay. feeling about this movie. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll be able to figure it out this time. And I think I've kind of divined what what it is that's that's lacking for me. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was never it was never my favorite. Uh, what about you? I think there is about half of a pretty darn funny movie in here, mm-hmm. and the other half not so much. But it's all kind of mixed together. It's not like you know you just watch for forty five minutes like oh this is great and then it's all downhill from there. No, it's not necessarily the case for me i do think the first act is stronger than the rest of the movie but there's still some good jokes here and there i think it's sort of like a like a c plus kind of movie to me like there's nothing offensively bad about it sure i don't think there's anything completely you know aside from the fact that it's russia and and missiles and things like that that feels exceptionally dated as far as the humor is concerned it's just kind of one that you watch and then go do something else and maybe you'll think about this song a couple of days later mm-hmm. because it's it's not good <laughs> but it'll stick right in your head yeah, yeah. other than that i don't i don't know that there's anything necessarily in the real content of this movie that is really going to stick with you at this point because i think uh i don't know i was thinking about it also in just terms of like a comedy that is is coming out these days it kind of feels mm-hmm. like you really gotta have that comedic engine so mm-hmm. that the movie is not only funny throughout but it's funny in servicing the plot like there's the jokes are building the story to the resolution you know right and here i felt like there was the plot and then there was the comedy and the two didn't necessarily gel i guess i i think you're right and i think it sort of either needs to be, it either needed to be a string of sketches where the plot kind of didn't matter and that was a part of what was funny. Yeah. Because like it could just be completely gonzo and yeah, or it needed to stick more to a plot because there, there, there's, there's, there's too much that honestly just doesn't make sense to me in characterization or plot or any of that. And I got, I get kind of hung up on it and then yeah. I think it kills some of the jokes. I think it just kills some of the punchlines for me. Gotcha. And that's kind of what it is. So then you get to the end and, and you, like you have this whole ending that felt like, oh, we were always headed here. But it like kind of didn't feel like we were. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not sure it felt inevitable to me. And also, I just think there, there just wasn't that much for them to do in the back mm-hmm. half. Like they weren't doing enough, I think, maybe in the, the simplest terms in the back half of the movie. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this then as we kind of break this down a little bit, because I don't know. I remember somebody saying this. Uh, on just like one of the TV shows that I was working on and thinking about like, okay, you got like a half hour of television, right? Yeah. People are going to kind of remember and hang on to, let's say like three scenes. So if like you have three good, funny, like three killer, funny moments in the show, in an episode, mm-hmm. you're gold. Right. That's what you want, you know, and that's what you want people to recall. And then everything else is kind of icing on the cake. Just, just don't blow it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't blow it. You know, you got to have those or you don't have an episode. Mm-hmm. So what are like the comedic 
kind of things that still maybe work for you or that you recall just from watching this? Because the one real solid memory I had of this movie was them in the centrifuge where they're, you know, testing the G-force capacity and their ability to handle that and the faces and then getting out in the hair. Right. And I don't know. I didn't laugh that much while they were in the device. No. The capsule. But them walking down the hall with those (laughs) ridiculous faces, that still made me laugh. It works pretty well. Yeah, maybe we should just kind of like catalog some of the good comedic stuff uh, that you took away from it this time. Well, yeah, let's, uh, yeah, I mean, let's be positive. Why not? Like, I, I've, yeah. I always liked the cut from uh, when they're surrounded by guys in, I believe, where are they? In Afghanistan or Pakistan? They start in Pakistan, yes. Yeah. And then they're they, they're surrounded by guys on horses and, and Ackroyd says, oh, wait, these are freedom fighters. Like, they're on our side. And so Chevy mm-hmm. Chase stands up and says, we're Americans. And it cuts to them hanging upside down. <laughs> Yeah. That that cut always cut. worked for me. Like that exactly. Like his yeah. delivery and that cut, beautiful. And some of the some of the test, I, I'm real mixed on the whole test sequence. Like the testing sequence seems it's like a it's strange. It's just so built to be. Here's a real showstopper. But there are some jokes that are just dead on arrival, and then there are other ones that like are pretty sharp and work really well. So I don't well, know. And it's like, also. It's just so inconsequential to the rest of the movie, basically. You know, there's nothing that they learn in those sequences that I recall that comes into play later on, basically, you know. And this isn't a movie about them going through basic training or anything like that. It is just a little brief aside in this movie that Stripes was funnier. uh, And, you know, there's, there's other examples, I think, that did that well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, though. Some of those were like the water ski thing or right. it wasn't water ski, but it was like, we're going to test your ability to stay afloat at high speeds. And like, you know, like I knew exactly where yeah. that was going. I could kind of remember it. And then the next thing you know, they're just jerked off of a dock at like crazy yeah. high speed. And that made me laugh. It's still I mean, that's a lot just of that. Like, yeah. Like those those comedy. quick things. Well, and that rem- mm-hmm. like you you pointing out that it's supposed to be kind of a Hope Crosby movie helped a lot for me in those bits. Because yeah. it was like, yeah, like these are just quick bits. Like they have to dive into the mud. They're just being shot at for no reason, which would never happen in a thousand years. <laughs> I know, even with blanks, yeah, it's yeah, like, it's it's, uh, it's, it's too close. Yeah, so yeah. I love all that. I I love the the old Blues Brothers joke. I I always say it's from Blues Brothers, but it's like all the all the soldiers behind them saying hut 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 hut. Yeah, I mean it just it, that that whole bit everything uh, everything kind of works for me in all of that stuff. So yeah, so a lot a lot of the timing stuff works really well. I feel like. What about well, the? Yeah. We'll go a little bit before that when Chevy Chase cheats on his Foreign Service exam. That was another one. I was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember this. Like. He and Ackroyd, you know, the setup is they're both going to take this exam to basically try and get what would essentially be a a promotion and a more glamorous one than what they're currently doing in their respective jobs. You know, Chase comes walking in late with an eye patch and a fake, like not only a fake cast, but an entirely fake arm in a cast. All of that is just a device for him to cheat. You know, he's got paper under the eye patch. He's got paper in his mouth. He's got paper, you know, cheat sheets in the cast. But boy, I I did not remember just how long that scene goes on and how long they play that gag. And also that's uh, Frank Oz, I believe, the the Mm -hmm. moderator for the exam. The very angry supervisor. (laughs) Yeah. 
He just seems annoyed to begin with. Some of that stuff, I I mean, he rips a fart. Like, Chase rips a fart. Yeah. Two yeah. seconds into this foreign exam, you know, when the whole room has gone quiet, which I didn't really get a laugh out of me until yeah. he then got, like, somehow managed to get the guy in the next seat to, like, take fault for it and say, excuse right. me, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, that made me laugh. And him, like overly aggressively clearing his throat to try and get Aykroyd's attention kind of made me laugh. But yeah. the scene on the, on the whole, that scene, I think is it's one that, yeah, maybe does sort of recall an, you know, an earlier area, era of comedy because it was just so unbelievable. Like, it's so unbelievable, that scene. Yeah. That that would yeah. be put up with and tolerated at all. I mean. Well, and, and that's that's what kind of kills me on it. That and these guys don't know each other. Yep. I have no idea why Ackroyd would help him. None. Yeah. I don't know why he would help him and why he gets in on the act when Ch- Chase starts pretending like he's having a heart attack. Yeah. And that's what kind of kills it for me because I'm just like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. Like you're just, it feels like you're trying to milk comedy out of something that's just not funny. Like I, I expect Ackroyd to say no and and for Chase to you know finagle a way to get the answers from him anyway or something. But like, I don't know. It, it, that just totally throws me. Suddenly they're a team, and I don't get why. Yeah, it's an interesting choice because they are set up as an odd couple because Aykroyd is clearly intelligent, his character, who's working in encryption, I believe, and, you know, has has proven himself to be very technologically savvy Mm -hmm. with any of those devices and the mechanical stuff. A, just as an actor, that dude, man, exposition is just like... He just makes it into like a dessert. I don't understand yeah, totally. how he delivers. He's so good at that. Totally. Uh, but Chase is sort of the like lazy rogue in this movie. You know, he's the guy that's when you first meet him is at his desk watching the Ronald Reagan musical uh, with headphones on and not doing anything. And, right. you know, is sleeping with Donna Dixon, clearly sort of hoping that she can get him out of taking the exam at all, I think. Which was, or just get him the to get it, you know, a pass without having to actually do any of the work. Right. So it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. These two guys are different. They're not gonna like each other at first, right? Yeah. That's what you do. Like that's what you do with two guys like that. And so yeah, it, it's the the first scene that they meet each other. Chase is all over him trying to cheat and like is asking what KGB stands for and all this stuff. There's just no reason for Ackroyd to go. Like he, there's nothing no. about anything we've seen from this guy that would suggest he'd go along with that. And right? I guess I wonder, yeah, I, I kind of like, I like, I like the way that Ackroyd's character is set up. I like that whole predicament. There's like, there's somebody keeping him down there. You yeah. Know, and and like this yeah. test is going to, you know, could break him out of it or whatever. But a part of me kind of feels like, like why wasn't, Dan Aykroyd, the other, the guy who sits across from Chevy Chase at the beginning. Yeah, I mean that like, would have made a lot of sense too. It kind of seems like yeah, like like yeah, he he needed to have something at stake with Chevy Chase. It doesn't make any sense that he would help him. Like doesn't make well. Any, well I just my my guess is that like yeah, okay, they're doing this Hope Crosby thing. They have to become friends, right? Yeah. And so we get because like that's just what this kind of movie is. I guess it's mm-hmm. like you can't have. Even if they're an odd couple, they're not going to be bickering. They're not going to be like yelling at each other. That's not the the jokes that they're going for in this thing, which it's clear after that exam scene that it, that's where the shift happens and suddenly these guys are buddies, you know? Right. Why not just make them buddies from the start then? <laughs> you know, I don't, sure. I don't, I don't know. So, I mean, I kind of understand the desire 
to have them just go ahead and become friends and not have to spend that real estate like, okay, like you don't get along with me. I don't get along with you. You're different than me. I'm different than you. But God, you know, damn it. We got to work together to get through. Like you can skip all that. Okay. I get it. Yeah. I I don't miss that. No, I I don't either. But then, yeah, I'm just like stripes again, you know, um, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis like knew each other when they enlisted and, you know, they were buddies like, and that worked. I, I don't have any problem with that. Like you don't have to do like any exercising, to explain that it's just oh, okay yeah. these guys are friends like i get it and that's yeah. it um so it was an interesting choice man it really is it just neuters some of the comedy here and there but again mm-hmm. we're supposed to be talking about positive stuff right oh yeah yeah uh, no, totally what else was funny to you in this movie uh love ninjas i love yeah them. ninjas that was good. I, yeah uh, uh uh especially the one who who does all the sword play and then the trees fall down uh-huh. Works works beautifully for me. I liked a line that Chevy yeah. Chase had in that scene. And basically, like, these guys were, what, were they just, like, dropped into the forest out of an airplane uh, yeah. during a night training? And they're suddenly, like, besieged upon by ninjas. Yeah. I think Chevy Chase is the one who said, stop right there, and I'll bring back the sun. And I was just like, what? Yeah. Like that? <laughs> That was good. I mean, uh, even as like a riffing thing, I'm like, where did that come from? But it made me laugh. Yeah, totally works for me. Once they are, so they're once they're in the desert and they're looking for their contact, right? And then these yep. these two dudes, one with a sweater over his shoulder, all just decked in pastels. These two like preppy yuppies. They look like '50s teen idols or something. You yeah, know? they're like, where where your uh, where your contacts? And it just sort of reminded me. Of how much it always like I feel like Landis hates yuppies. Yeah, trading yep. places, uh, uh, Animal House, like all that stuff. Like to see mm-hmm. these guys come up and just they're just such yuppies. <laughs> I, I love that. I love it. It makes me feel like I'm in a Landis movie, and that makes me happy. Yeah. And they turn out not really to be yuppies, uh, no. at least of the sort, because they're working for the Russians. I I kind of got a good laugh out of just. You know, they're they're dropped out of another plane in a crate uh, into Pakistan in just like a very small community yeah. where the crate just lands and takes out the corner of <laughs> these villagers' hut and yeah. opens up. And there's these two buffoons in there eating uh, Tostitos chips and drinking <laughs> Budweiser. So that made me laugh. I mean, I yeah. sort of wish they had gone further with that kind of thing. Right. Just like the sheer laziness of these guys and just like the American slob sort of cultural difference that they could have gotten out of putting these guys in a place like Pakistan or moving into Afghanistan and, and Russia. Um, yeah, I thought that was funny, too. And a part of what was funny to me about the way that went down was like they both seem pretty unflappable about the fact that they're in a crate falling through the sky. Yeah. And it's like, so either either they're, they're two guys relaxed. going through all these like scary moments and they're just totally nonchalant about it, that's that's one movie. And then if they're going to, but if they're going to panic about everything, that's the other movie. And I feel like we get both of them for some reason. Like sometimes they're panicked and sometimes they're just not. Yeah, so the, the threat of, of real danger and even that these guys are going to be captured is pretty limited in this movie. You know? Yes. And I think that is something that would be different if it were done today. I mean, I think you would have to make that threat a little more real. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you with that. Let's talk about the doctor, 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 doctor scene. Mm -hmm. Because that's where it started to lose me a little bit, honestly, Mm -hmm. on the comedic side. So these guys, you know, after they've kind of 
come into contact with these guys who turn out to be uh, Russian spies and they escape them. They move, let's see, into another village of sorts and they find who they think are their real contacts, British woman, or no, British man and a, uh, an American woman and they're doctors and they think that Chase and Aykroyd are surgeons that they've been expecting. And like part of the deal is you guys are the best. You're going to operate on the con of this tribe, and that's going to prove to all of these other soldiers that we're actually on their side and we're here to help them, and we're part of the fight against the Russians, basically. And, of course, it's a classic 1985 pretend-to-be-someone-you're-not private Uh, resort kind of. I mean, you know, we've seen it a bunch. Yeah. They take it pretty far, and the only real gag they got out of that was that there's a group of doctors and they all call each other doctor. And so, yeah, you have yeah. that like, stilted conversation with doctor, doctor. And that's, by the way, you know, we talked about all the directors that make cameos in this movie. Definitely Terry Gilliam is in that scene, among others. Um, mm-hmm. He plays, I think, a German doctor, which is kind of funny. Yep. <laughs> but I don't know. I just, like, to me, that is a bit of dated humor, you know? That's kind of just those jokes that they were getting out of that scene, which... Yeah. I think maybe reaches its finality when Bob Hope makes his cameo and he's just playing golf in the middle of this desert and hits the ball into their tent. And even there, I was like, it's just uh, that even that didn't really get a smile out of me. I don't know. Am I cold hearted? Yeah, I I feel the same way. Although the joke of him appearing and playing golf, I wanted more of the movie to be more like that. Exactly. It could be airplane or something. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like with this bit, first you have some some super funny, what what today we might call sexual assault. Yeah. 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 <laughs> in the tent. But in the surgery, for some reason, three of the doctors in this village are helping Dan Aykroyd figure out where to cut this guy. Yeah. And I just like again, it's one of those things where I'm just like, that's fine. But I it, it kills everything. Like I don't like the the pressure here is they're actually they have to try and take an organ out of this guy. Like they're yeah. they're it's a funny setup. Of course they're not going to come forward and say we're not actually actually doctors. But yeah, the whole thing is like how are you going to get through this? And then when something like that happens, it just feels like it's it feels like the rules have been broken. Like no one should be helping them. Yeah. Like why are they nodding or shaking their heads? It's like I don't. I, I yeah, I, I think it's it's so, just yeah. some of that I think is a product of its time. But it's also it's kind of interesting to look at that scene, too, just comedically. I think the button of the guy on the table coming out of anesthesia and staring at them and gasping and then dying is actually pretty like that's a pretty funny way out of that scene. Right. Yes, and one definitely. that I'm like, I still I forgot about. It and I was like, oh, OK, like <laughs> that's pretty good because then yeah. it's you know, it doesn't matter that they're not surgeons, really. Because right. the guy died on the table, and that's going to piss off the entire village. So it yeah. it feels like yeah, that there again. Like if you're redoing this today, I guarantee you, like nobody else is trying to help these guys. And the second that they really let on in an obvious way that they're not surgeons, the gig is up, right? So right. you play it like straight and and really get how close can you get to that moment before they put a scalpel into this guy with no clue what they're doing, and then him wake up on the table and die. Like uh, I don't know. It's interesting to to look at like something like that where you know you got a a, a great entrance and a great exit. I think for mm-hmm. the whole bit, it's just those little 
shades of execution that somehow make it like a diff like a different type of comedy than what you'd maybe thought you were going to get going into that scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like you almost yeah. want you almost want them to be completely successful. Yeah, which like, that would have been no funny too. There's no doubt in yeah. anyone's mind until the guy dies. Like, yeah. Or, or that would have been hilarious. That yeah. Just, yeah. They just take um, something out of this guy and it's just like, well, yeah. that looks like a <laughs> that would have been interesting. But kind of after this moment, like I, I sort of mentioned, I, I don't know, that there wasn't really a good standout moment of humor to me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't recall any one like big gag from that because they're they're basically realizing that the two doctors that they met with, uh, you know, initially when they came into that camp are headed for the Russian border as well. Right. And then Chase is taken captive. And, and I mean, some of, you know, look, the guy, I, I love his delivery. So, like, I, I don't mind. I mean, especially, like, in this era, it's like I'm happy to just kind of hear Chevy Chase do his thing. Right. Some of that stuff is funny. Some of the lines are sure. funny. But I, I just don't remember, like, a good, like, comedic set piece or anything like that. I don't either. And let me yeah. ask you this question, because this is something that was popping up in my mind constantly during this bit, especially, like, during that uh you know, the, the, the Russians intercept them and then they end up in this village and they have to do the surgery and then they're on this bus where they end up seeing their those two surgeons and figuring out they're yeah. also spies. So the whole way through that, I'm trying to figure out how the decoy spy plan is supposed to work. You're asking the wrong guy, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking I, for I, answers. <laughs> <laughs> like that that like that's when it really became clear to me because it was like, but if those two are the spies that we're supposed to be decoying away from, what is it that we've done here? Like, what the hell were they doing as surgeons, you know? To de- yeah, like, how, yeah. how did our decoys end up in the same place as they did? Like, if you're trying to split people off. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. And honestly, it's not important at all. It shouldn't, no. like, this kind of movie should just be nonstop weirdness to an extent, you know? And it shouldn't, like, that should be the last thing I'm thinking about. But then I couldn't right. help thinking about it. I was just like... How are they supposed to de? I mean, they were successful. They decoyed those two guys away, but I don't yeah. know why. I don't know why they those guys found them instead of finding the other two spots. I don't know. I don't it's know. a bit coincidental. I mean, obviously, clearly, Ackroyd and Chase were not supposed to make contact with the other two guys, uh, yeah. the other two agents, uh, and yet they did in a very large country. So mm-hmm. it is a bit convenient in that overlap there, I think, as well. It's building really upon the device that Chase has the hots for Miss um, Donna Dixon and Kieran Boyer, mm-hmm. no oh, one yeah. pretending to also be a surgeon or a doctor, and is sort of following her. And, you know, I liked some of that conversation, too, about thinking with your dick and things, <laughs> some of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, through high school, you know, uh, like some yeah, of that, that stuff. The, yeah. There's some good throwaways, funny. for sure. Yeah. And it, it also is, to me, that's just, I mean, that is consistent with. The, the character that they established up front with, with with Chevy Chase there. But yeah, I mean, once you sort of get into them having to actually act to, to kind of do the right thing and, you know, get Chase out of there and get you know, this missile business, I mean, a lot of that is, is playing sort of like fast and loose with reality, I think, as well, and mm-hmm. just sort of the serious nature of it. Because, I mean, when they're hiding behind a, like, you know, a stack of firewood and there's just machine guns blazing at them <laughs> yeah. i was like ah, i don't know about this and also yeah. did you notice in that moment too like 
So Chase has been held hostage in this house. He's captive, and they're trying to, you know, the Russians are trying to beat information out of him and get information out. A, they've got posters of uh, Warren Beatty's Reds and Dr. Zhivago on the walls oh, yeah. of this cabin, which, yeah. you know, kind of like land us here. Um, Ackroyd comes to save him, and there's a big shootout, and like I said, they're hiding behind stacks of firewood. And as soon as they leave on horse, they then meet up with Boyer. And, like, what what was she doing the whole time? Like, she didn't... I yeah. mean, she sort of made herself known with Ackroyd that... It was not her or her nation's priority to save Chase, which I right. get. Right. But then it's, there was no moment where Ackroyd and Chase then had to say, look, okay, we're going to help you, or you know, we're in on this too. We're both agents. We're all agents. But you know, I, I get that you didn't want to come save him, but blah, blah. You know, they didn't have that sort of reunion moment. It's just like, oh, there she is. <laughs> right. and now, now she's just, they're just following her. That was a little weird to me. Yeah. And then should we talk about the <laughs> the Russians that like to dance a little? Yeah. And get into the missile sequence. Because this, too, you know, as we mentioned in the tee-up, originally they shot an ending where the entire world is destroyed uh, by, yeah. you know, nuclear war. And that's definitely not, not the case in the movie that made it into the theater. And, oh, man, I, I still wish it was for any yeah. number of reasons. But, A, I have to point out that among the guards, the Russian guards who are guarding this missile on a truck, uh, one of them is played by Vanessa Angel, very beautiful Vanessa Angel, who Craig Mm -hmm. played Lisa on the Weird Science TV show. That's how, that's where I recognize that name. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. In some ways, I like everything... I kind of like how that stuff went down. I mean, again, like there's, <laughs> there's never a moment where I thought anybody was in any danger, really. You know, of course not. With yeah. those Russian guards, and then even with the rocket and the missile, but there were a few surprises there. The yeah. biggest being that after our American heroes take control of the situation and type in the lot, you know, the code or whatever into this missile, which I, I'm not a hundred percent clear about what they thought it was going to do. Right. But they did not think it was going to launch on American soil, you know, and, and blow up half of America, which it appears to be headed to do. But after that moment, you get Chase turning to Donna Dixon saying, well, you want to go out on a bang? And (laughs) do you remember her response? Well, first she says no. I wrote out, she said, well, if we were in a bar, I'd throw a drink in your face. But under the circumstances, it's not a bad idea. <sighs> yep. And I, I had this discussion with my wife, and I, I, I don't want to embarrass her or anything. I was like, but I, I, do you really think you would be able to, <laughs> no. like, even remotely consider being intimate with anybody in any capacity if you thought that nuclear retaliation, because like Ackroyd times it to like, we got about 42 minutes left before uh, the entire nuclear winter breaks out, basically. Like th- right. there's attack is going to happen. I get, yeah, it's a comedy. Sure. But I don't know. I don't see strangers it's, like <laughs> going yeah. down that road. <laughs> well, I mean, just... y- yeah, I mean, y- you have a guy who has been continuously hitting on you and just and absolutely molesting you. Yeah. And that's the guy you're going to say sure to? 
I mean, I mean, dude, what if he's terrible in the in bed? Like that's, that's no way to go out at all. That's the last, yeah. That's like the last that, thing you're going to take. Your plans are, yeah. That's why it really wouldn't. <laughs> how could you? How could you concentrate? Exactly. Yeah. But luckily, they all pair off. And I'd also like to say at this point, all this stuff, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, the guys who were in the bunker back in the United States. Mm-hmm. This ending just feels deathly slow to me. It was a little bit, yeah. Like there's some point where I just I just wrote down like you know why does this feel so slow and I. Part of it was because every time those guys would like, okay, initiate the, I don't know, ground yeah. reflectors or whatever. And I mean, it would just, this thing would start raising out of the ground, going like a mile an hour. You're going to watch the whole thing. Elmer Bernstein music, like pumping away. I'm like, oh God, that was killing me. I don't recall like a ticking clock either. Uh, maybe no. there was. And that seems like a really easy thing to build into that kind of situation. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm kind of yeah. with you. And I was saving even talking about that military plot, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah, I'm kind of with you. I mean, I, I think A, it was just like the stakes just had never felt that in, intensely dangerous. No. Now, here's here's my one version of this where maybe that could have worked. And it is like... You know, uh, we've got 42 minutes left before nuclear winter, you know, retali- complete retaliation and WW3. Uh, you want to go out with a bang? And then you just sort of like cut to and like, yeah, like they're all having sex. It just, you completely just go off the rails of reality. You make it as absurd as possible. And then, you know, at the height of of lust, that's when the entire world gets blown to bits, you know, sure. like with if that's, you know, their original ending was that everything got destroyed. Like, I, I do feel like in some ways having that ending would have made this decision for these people to do this a little more like palpable or believable yeah. or not even believable, but just fun. Like it would have been it like would have played fit. in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And instead, yeah, the ending that you do get is these exact same group of people are still kind of paired off and they're basically deciding, you know, who gets control of of what land or, you know, who's going to have nukes where, basically, on yeah. the map. They're playing risk, you know, more or less, but with real-life consequential or consequences. And I don't remember particularly anything funny about that scene, and it's, it's uh, yeah, it is a... Is, uh, it's just an ending. It feels like just an ending to me in a way. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So it's true. let's talk a little bit about the government stuff. You know, basically, you know, we mentioned you got Bruce Davison in there, and I think Tom Haddon was another one of those guys. Steve Forrest, like some of these heavies, like you've seen these people before. You know, they're the ones that are they're plotting this out that Chase and Aykroyd will be the decoys, and then you're finding out that part of the plan basically is these military warhawks want to launch this min- missile at the U.S. because they've got this it was Star Wars satellite defense system, right. but that that they can use that, and they'll be U.S. will be completely safe, but it would then give them an excuse to launch an attack on Russia. And doing so will disarm Russia and will resolve that situation for good. You know, killing millions and millions of people in the process, right? right. But hey, that's that's how you get a movie and drama. You know, that in and of itself is is interesting. I mean, you know, you've seen it before in Strange Love and, and things like that. 
But here, I mean, there, there is no cross-section. Like, Chase and Aykroyd, I don't think, ever appear in front of any of those people, right? They're, 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 only, in, they're only in a room with them once, I think, when they're watching the test scene. Yes, when they're <laughs> the footage from the exam, yeah. Yeah. But beyond that, yeah, there's I don't there's no real comeuppance for those guys, at least not from the hands of Aykroyd and Chase. And right. so again, like it just it it neuters the stakes a little bit, you know, because here they were yeah. sent to basically what was supposed to be their death. And then, you know, not only that, they survive Pakistan to then play a part in launching a nuclear weapon that's going to start nuclear war against Russia, you know, and defeat Russia uh, and kill millions of people. And with the ending they then filmed, it's sort of like not only they didn't get comeuppance, but they're still working for these guys, I would assume, right? Yeah. I mean, they're still a part of the military, you know, core there. So that kind of bugged me a little bit about the whole plot of that. Well, yeah, I kind of feel like the the military side of the plot started to feel really detached in a way. And I, I kind of felt like, uh, and I don't know if this would just be too formulaic, but you know, it seemed like Bruce Davison and the other dude, it seems like it should have been them completely in control. And this was their plan to launch the thing against the United States and then use star Wars and then launch stuff back. Like that should have been their plan. And then all they're doing after they let Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd go, uh, you know, once they send them overseas, all they're doing the rest of the movie is just seeing how Chase and Aykroyd are completely ruining their plan. Yeah. Like that to me felt like, like that's what that should be. But then you got these two other guys on top of those two guys who have the plan. And then those two guys are the ones like, what? That's bad. And yeah, I don't know. It just starts to feel like, I don't know how to feel. It's kind of muddy. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, I mean, you know? I kind of get like, it's a bit of that chain of command thing where it's like, okay, you like, what, uh, what does it take for a nuclear weapon to get launched? Does it really just take one bad apple to be able to right. screw up that entire chain of events? And so I, I think that's maybe where they were going with some of that thinking and also just trying to have a little surprise to that plot because otherwise yeah. there's not much really to it. Sure. I will say like Landa, I mean, aside from, yeah, I think some of the pacing stuff there at the end, like Landa still manages to make some of that stuff feel kind of cool. I mean, I love the drive-in sure. setting as yeah. like this abandoned drive-in as sort of like the facade for this headquarters. And that's where we see Joel Cohen and B.B. King. And by the way, like we should talk about this too. Like, and we'll definitely in Into the Night. He gets pretty good performances out of like every director that's in this thing that has a line. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's like even Joel Cohen. I'm just like, I don't know, you know, no, he's ever <laughs> like you yeah. see him in interviews and he's like completely deadpan. And it's just, uh, you know, like you're not expecting Mace you know, any kind of performance whatsoever, but he, you know, he's good enough in his little bit part here. And there were moments with some of that where, you know, they're being brought in this place and they're going underground and they're like, you get the little elevator and, and then you're in this like secret layer where I kind of wondered in some ways, is this movie sort of like the, like, this is what men in black looks like in 1985, right? Like you get this comedy that can appeal to people. You've got this government agent involvement, you know, you've got missiles and Russians and then, you know, two guys front and center who are providing you jokes. Right. And then, yeah. yeah, So in the nineties, 
you start inserting aliens and CGI. And then like, it just evolves from that where now it's like, yeah, like comedies it definitely feels like in a lot of ways to get a big studio comedy on the you know ground. Now it's it like, it can't just be a comedy in a lot of ways, you know, it's gotta right. be like a yeah. hybrid of sorts. I mean, even like Thor, yeah. which I haven't seen Ragnarok, like, you know, you were telling me like, it, it definitely feels like a comedy as much as anything else, you know? Yeah. For uh, sure. Which is great. I don't know. It's, I just kind of wonder, like, if if this is sort of, and even you know, we'll talk about it with Back to the Future, like where, like, some of this is sort of like reaching new levels as far as like that sort of like hybridization of comedy mm-hmm. with another genre, and uh, yeah, clearly, people went and saw this movie. It did very, very yeah. well. Does that surprise you, having watched it again? No, I mean, especially especially at the time, it doesn't surprise me at all. Like, I feel like. You've got Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase in a movie, done. Landis is doing it. Like it, it'll feel familiar enough, you know. It's yeah. fun enough. Like I, I, I don't, I don't feel surprised that it that it did as well as it did. Like if it was two hundred million dollars or something, I'd be like, that's that's a bit much. <laughs> yeah, if it had made but, more than Back to the Future, I think I would have been like, whoa, this is yeah, completely uncalled. But uh. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm with you in that for the time and in the context of it of what Chase is at this time, what Ackroyd is and Landis, especially, I still think, yeah, it's goofy funny seeing these guys in some of these these costumes. You know, I think they get a lot of mileage out of that and it was on the poster and I'm sure yeah. in the trailers, right? And yeah. that probably got people to the theaters. But as far as being like a better comedy than, you know, Breakfast Club or Weird Science or, I, I don't know. I think there's definitely comedies... Lost in America. I mean, that are better movies, better comedies that didn't do anything remotely close to this kind of business. Agreed. Let's talk a little bit about uh, See You Next Wednesday. Yes, let's do that. Did you did you spot the poster in Spies Like Us? It was. It was like we, yep. we want you in the Army poster, right? Yes, it was. Yep. Now, I, I did just a tidbit of research on this because we mentioned it briefly, I think, last time. Um, but I, I did read that the, I don't know why he latched onto this phrase, really, but it apparently is the last line of dialogue spoken by Frank Poole in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey when he has that video phone conversation with his parents. Uh, oh, right. Next yeah. And like, I'm, what a weird thing to just kind of. And like, it's been in all. I mean, now there's other movies that have no connection to Landis whatsoever that use it. Um, yeah. and like, I think Deadpool had it up and there's so many other things, but yeah, as we said, he usually gets that somewhere into every one of his movies and I did not see it in into the night. So you'll have to tell me where you caught it if you did. Oh, but I did. Last thing for me on, on, on Spires Like Us is I just wanted to mention that I didn't even realize that this movie was PG until today. I thought it was PG 13, even the whole time while I was watching it. Yeah. That's kind of crazy because, like, uh, IMDb has sort of the breakdown for the certification here, and it says there are two instances of sex and nudity, one of violence and gore, 11 of profanity, one of alcohol, drugs, and smoking, and one frightening and intense scenes. And that clearly would be PG-13 territory today, right? I yeah. mean, no yeah. question. I wonder if this was a rated R movie, would it have been funnier? Would oh, they have been able so, to go yeah. places that would have been a little funnier? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. 
Well, I think that might be a good way to lead us into the night. Ed Oaken can't sleep. Every day, he has breakfast. Oh, that's Stan. Every day, he goes to work. Every day, he comes home. You're losing your mind, Ed. One day, he comes home early. That night, he takes a drive. And Diana falls into his life. The synopsis, I'm going to go with the IMDb synopsis of Into the Night because it's so short mm-hmm. and could uh, describe so many movies, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I like about Those it. are always the best. Mm-hmm. A discouraged man gets caught up in the dangerous activities of a woman on the run. It's 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 a bit vague maybe, but it's also, uh, can't argue with it. That's pretty much what this movie is. Yeah. So we've got Into the Night. It's uh, Jeff Goldblum. Stars is Ed Oaken, who's a guy in a humdrum marriage who learns his wife is cheating on him. And, you know, he's not feeling so great about life in general. When Michelle Pfeiffer jumps in his car being chased by uh, Iranians shooting at her. Mm-hmm. Just the classic uh, American dream. So, yeah. So, Sean, you had never seen this. Correct. How did you feel about this movie? I liked it. I think it's uh, the better of the two movies, for sure. Pretty easy for me to say that, I think. And <laughs> I'd say it's a little uneven. P- parts of it feel a little slow to me. Tonally, it's a bit all over the place, but I kind of liked it because of that. Uh, it reminded me of, you know, just a different type of, like, movie. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I see that more now, and especially maybe in the 90s where you had movies that were both violent and funny, you know, from, mm-hmm. you know, moments in Reservoir Dogs and what Tarantino was doing and Train Spotting and, and elsewhere. And even maybe a little something like Baby Driver from this year. And so I I think maybe that's my understanding of why it didn't quite do that well at the box office. You know, it was in the bottom half of you know these 100 movies that we've looked at here or 180 or whatever it's on box office mojo and i can kind of i can kind of see that i can i can see that it maybe had a hard time finding an audience in 1985 mm-hmm. but yeah i think on the whole it it's it's pretty interesting there's some good stuff in here and there's some stuff that i think lacks like human reality, uh, for sure. sure. You know, there's some motivations and things, but I'm not sure why people are doing what they're doing. But yeah, on the whole, I I, kind of came away thinking that was good. I don't know that I'm dying to watch it again immediately, but I kind of dug it. What about you? Uh, I feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you've got Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer in pretty much every scene. Yeah, they're both and really good. And the two good. of them are great. And mm-hmm. they were not first choices, as I understand. Oh, like, uh, really? They were not first choices at all. And then, but I mean, man, like they're just both so, this sounds like such a, this sounds like such a weak bit of praise. They're so watchable. Yeah. Like I just watched the hell out of both of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I guess maybe it's just a part of it just being a fairly unexpected movie in a lot of ways there's a, there's 
enough. I don't know. It it almost seems more like a bunch of sketches than Spies Like Us does. Um, the way they kind of move around and they move around from villain to villain in a way, and you yeah. know, then you got David Bowie in your face suddenly, and then he's gone, and then you got this other person, and I don't know. I, I um, really, I think probably more than anything, what I like about this over Spies Like Us. Uh, and, and maybe you feel differently. I, I, I couldn't tell from what you said exactly, but I felt like the, the these two characters, I, I understood better their motivations throughout the movie than yeah. I did in Spies Like Us. Like they I, their characters seem much more consistent in general. And I feel like it should be like Ed, Ed's motivation to stay with her through the night should be the weakest part of it. Yeah. But I buy it from the setup. Like I, I have enough from the setup of his life that I'm like, fine, I can go along with this. I would argue not even, not only that, there are multiple moments where he says, this is crazy. I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here. Like I, I just, I'm going to get a cab. I'm going to go home. <laughs> and they keep finding inventive ways to, you know, sustain that and, and draw that out and have that not happen and bring him into the plot. And yeah. uh, I mean, there were there were constant moments where, yeah, like, you know, danger has happened and he has every reason to be concerned and want to get the hell out of there. And it feels like that's going to happen. Like he's just waiting yeah. for a cab or they're going to just do this one little thing. And I think a lot of that does does come from Pfeiffer I and mean, from her performance and for her selling totally that kind of that making him feel like and making us believe that okay yeah if she yeah if she just needs to do this one little thing and then yeah he's he's gone you know she totally appreciates it and everything like that and we'll never see each other again and i i'm with you man that is a tricky tricky thing to pull off and and definitely <laughs> you know when you stop and think about it should have been like the first thing to fall apart and make the rest of the movie yeah. uh, unwatchable, basically, or yeah. just a joke. But uh, it's not. Yeah, I mean that's that's a real feat there. I think that 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 he achieved, and I think a lot of it is uh, it is in the in the directing I and mean, the, the the pace sure. of the movie and cutting it together and making those scenes believable and then getting those performances. And again, I, I think yeah, Goldblum. Pfeiffer, extremely watchable, but man, uh, Cronenberg I thought was good, and and just oh, yeah. all, I loved David Bowie in this. Like he was creepy as hell yes. in this scene. I thought that was a great performance, and like frankly, I wish there had been more of him in this thing. Um, yeah, there's not much at all. No, he caught me off guard. I was I was not expecting like him to play a a bad guy. I mean, you know, yeah. a pretty ruthless villain here, and and I think he's good at it. Yeah, I mean, I believed it, and. You know, look like this is again eighty five. The Middle Eastern stuff, the Iranians. Um, it's easy to point a finger and say these are stereotypes, and there's nothing mm-hmm. positive coming out of that side of the table, uh, representationally at all. Right. And I understand that, but at least he got some humor out of out of it that I don't think was just at the expense of them being Iranian and Landis inserts himself as one of the Iranian <laughs> guards right. and these thugs, these like four thugs that are constantly following them around and constantly eating nuts and things like that. And, uh, I, by the end of it, I was like, kind of like in love with those like the, those thugs, like these like nameless, you know, wordless yeah. thugs, basically. I kind of love those little touches. Um, 
And how tricky is that? I mean, super tricky. Yeah. All these guys are doing is going around busting up places and killing people. That's yeah. It. They're like, that's all. They don't. They yeah, trigger they, happy. They don't speak a word of English to the entire movie. Yeah. And and it never. There's never subtitles as I remember. Nope. Like it just says that they're speaking Iranian. Uh, but then yeah, and then at the end you have kind of their, the the, the woman in power, who is not a joke. Yep. Like she is 100% not a joke. So Irene I don't know. Pappas. Yeah. In in a, in a way. Yeah, I, I, I liked those. I yeah, I liked those guys a lot. Sure, I liked those guys a lot. Mm-hmm. They were a good part of this movie. Yeah, I think it's it's got some nice stylistic chops in this movie as well. I mean, even just from the opening shot, you know, it's an extended aerial shot where you're basically the POV of a plane landing at LAX in the middle of the night, and uh, I just thought that was a cool way to open a movie. You know, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> There's no music until like the wheels touch ground, and then you get the the BB King song, which totally agree it's a better song for and sure. And it's heavy synthesizers too. Like yeah, it feels it's, so 80s. It's great. It's very 80s. There's a lot of saxophone going on, and one of it was it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Just like it set the mood early on. I was like, okay, like this is such a different animal than Spies Like Us. Yeah. From everything about it, like the construct, like it feels just like two different people should have made this thing. Uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I feel like maybe let's give a little bit of background on the Ed character, the Goldblum's character, just a little bit, because I think you're right. Like, you know, the way they really make his work believably is that you understand this guy and you like him. And I thought it was a nice little trick. I mean, you know, I think we meet him, he's in bed and sitting up and just sort of like staring into the distance while his wife is out cold beside him. She's not like nuzzled up against him you know, it's just like one right. of those shots that it says a lot without any dialogue. Yeah. And it's kind of a great little push in shot, too. At that point, I was like, oh, well, this this might be more of a drama than I was anticipating, you know. Yeah. But you find out that he's basically had insomnia, I think, for was it three months or so. Just a long time. And uh, I thought it was a lot of fun, actually, to watch Goldblum play a character like that because. And so many things like, you know, he's just talking, 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 and he's got that sort of like, you know, it's not manic energy, but there's energy behind his words for sure. And boy, this is like, it's not that at all. Like, here's a movie where he's exhausted. And there are moments where there was one in specific, I think, fairly early on with Pfeiffer, maybe when they go visit the set of the TV show, where he's saying something and like he basically just pauses in the middle of the sentence and it's not for like dramatic flares just it's because he's tired like he's literally sleepy and exhausted yeah. and i was like well that's such a nice little like touch there and yeah uh, there's also something just about watching that guy and like his like physicality and his you know his like shoulder to head ratio is like 70% shoulders and 30% in his little teeny head of his and it's he's so like <laughs> there's just something animalistic about watching Jeff Goldblum at any pace and like here it seemed exaggerated you know and like again i think like yeah. that's part of what's so watchable about him and that's that weird magnetism of him is just like he looks like he's just not human in some ways in this thing yeah but they they made that work for like it works for the story in this it was interesting then to see the home life a little bit and you know clearly there's a, a bit of a disconnect with the wife uh before they head off to their respective jobs and again it's it's one of those things we i think we talked about with something else where they're not in each other's throats right it's it's not that 
It's just they're not 100% on the same page. Find out later, of course, the wife is cheating on him. And that I, obviously that's, I think, the big thing that buys you sympathy for that guy in this movie. Yeah. Um, how did you like that reveal? I thought it was, it was pretty darn good. I loved it, yeah. So they're they're having this discussion in a coffee shop, right? When he tells her, and it's it's his character is, is what grounds this. However goofy the rest of it gets, his character is the one who grounds it, and and it works really well. Like it's a great way to keep everything, yeah, low enough to the ground to to stay believable. I think. Yeah, and even just I mean the handling of it too. It's like what like Goldblum I think he comes home from work because he's exhausted he's going to take a nap and the car is there that's the guy that gives his wife a ride to work every day and yeah. it's like that's not good and we kind of you, you kind of know where that is going but it's just a matter of uh, what's well, the execution of it well Goldblum doesn't go inside he just goes to the window we don't see what he sees you just hear like the faintest sounds of people breathing and having sex and it's like this nice wide shot where he's just standing on his lawn looking pathetic and then he leaves and then later you get like this one quick flash and where you actually do see his wife and it's basically what he's imagining or replaying in his mind is his wife with this other guy and that's kind of all it is yeah and gosh i'm trying to remember now you do see the wife again after that but you know the whole sort of way into the michelle pfeiffer of it all is that like that night after, you know, Aykroyd, his buddy at work, has told him that what he ought to do in the middle of the night is get up and go to Vegas because, you know, he can that city never sleeps. And, you know, he can get loose, get wild, get laid, everything like that, and be home before his wife, you know, wakes up and even realizes he ever left. And so that's what gets him to the airport, right? And he's making that decision about, is he actually going to go get on a plane and do this thing? Which I liked. I mean, I think that's, that's a nice little character quirk. Yeah. And, you know, you've sensed that he's not going to do it. In fact, I think he starts his car to leave, and then that's when he sort of bumps into Michelle Pfeiffer, who's running away um, from this horrific thing. I thought it was worth mentioning that, in some ways, this movie is not that different from Commando, if you'll recall, that uh, Schwarzenegger and Radon Chong intersect at an airport with a bad guy, right? Yeah. So I don't know, <laughs> like if that's just, and there, there's weird things about how these plot elements get repeated in a year when you're really examining it. Because this also, Craig, the third movie we've done so far, where jewels being stolen are essential to the plot. <laughs> what was the first one? Private resort. Private resort. And then desperately seeking Susan, the earrings. Oh, right, right, right. And then here it's these stones that are of, like, priceless value that were from, I think, the crown jewels of the Shah in Iran. And, yeah, yeah, I don't know because we haven't even got to, like, Jewel of the Nile yet. So, I I mean, (laughs) I don't know what was going on at jewelry stores or just in the world of jewels in 1985, but nobody's jewels were safe. And it'll get you killed. Yeah. Mistaken identities out the wazoo. Don't uh, be a jewel thief. Come on. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that's such a crazy thing to think about that. Like, when has that ever been mentioned in your life in the past 20 years or 30 years? Like, I've never, people don't talk about jewel thieves. (laughs) Not at all. So weird. Not at all. But yeah, I, I think, you know, after they have this intersection, 
you're right. It is a bit like you're kind of just devising a series of events to keep them together and to try and piece together why this girl is on the run and who she's on the run from and what exactly has she done. Because, you know, they very cleverly explain why they can't just go to the cops. Because that's, I, I hate that. Like, I, that's always my yeah. first thing. It's like, if, if there's any reason at all that you could just go to the cops, you got to get that out there for, like, don't drag yeah. that out and let the audience think about it. So, I mean, what did you think about, like, the mechanics of all that stuff? And just the way that they kind of moved us through that? Did most of these various places and the going to the brother's apartment, the brother's Bruce McGill, who's an Elvis impersonator, or at least a big Elvis oh, so fan. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, is it just those little details that make that kind of stuff better than maybe what it ought to be just on, like when you look at it on paper, you know? Well, uh, I think so. I mean, cause honestly, there's only a few bits in this where this movie as a thriller works yeah like really well and and beyond that like i never got caught up in the i I never got too caught up in the whole jewels and (laughs) who wants them for what reason you can't that kind of stuff like it wasn't yeah like even at the end when it all is explained it's kind of like it's pretty uh um complex why what the jewels are for (laughs) yeah god oh um, yeah yeah so Honestly, it is. It's, it's little stuff like Bruce McGill as the Elvis impersonator. And, and, and even, I mean, that stuff is just being played totally straight. Yeah. And, 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 and actually, I was really happy to find out that she's not really a jewel thief, which is kind of the way it had been oh, God, yeah. put to me before. Like, I was oh, like, oh, okay. she's going to be like scaling buildings and stuff like that. <laughs> and no, Cat no, burglar. she's, she's yeah. just as incidental as he is to her own life, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so you know the fact that they're together and now they have to survive because all of these more powerful people are you know have this thing going on um keeps it really interesting so and 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 so for that same reason like i don't feel like i really need a lot of plot like i kind of just want to stick with them and i feel like he does want to stick with her like even even though things are explained pretty well and you know that he he doesn't really make completely dumb movie choices yeah i still feel like underlying all of that is he doesn't really want this to end. Like at least there's a part of him that doesn't want this to be over. Sure. Um, even as dangerous as it is. So, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. So it's kind of that's what kind of keeps me going. It's certainly not the not the plot. Um, yeah. But the fact that the movie keeps moving as quickly as it does, like I don't I don't know that I really feel felt bored, or maybe I've just forgotten about scenes where I felt bored, but. Um, I, don't know. I didn't it's, either. I mean, like, I, I think it slowed down strange. a little in the second half. Uh, well, maybe not in the second half, just like towards the last 25 minutes a bit. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, in some ways, and I'm not saying these are apples to apples at all. Mm-hmm. I thought of something like Inherent Vice, which I don't know if you even got around to seeing yet or not. But um, no, I haven't. Like, there's something to like that movie and this movie where you're just, there's so many minor characters that you come across and each of them feels kind of like quintessentially LA. Right. And these are totally two totally different time periods, that movie uh, and the book uh, and this, but you know, just 
quick examples. You go to a boat at like Marina del Rey and Lou Ferrigno is the guy <laughs> that kind of answers the door. And you're like, who the hell is this? And like immediately, I think at that point, probably led to believe or at least assume, okay, who is this Yahoo that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer dated, right? Or it's a boyfriend of like, no, that's not yeah. it at all because you haven't even got to the point yet where you're, you're dealing with her. <clears throat> lovers and it's going to be way more complicated than that and then you're visiting the set of a of a tv show and she's got a friend there and okay yeah you got to intersect the business a little bit because it's la but it's still it's fun like she's an actress but she's not like super famous actress and so it's not like she's coming in and overwhelming the rest of the plot or somehow it's going to be about the movie business or anything like that, or it's going to even get into like weird, dumb satire of the movie business. No, this is just a friend of hers who's going to end up hiding the stones uh, for Michelle Pfeiffer. And partly because she doesn't want to let Michelle Pfeiffer stay with her. I mean, I think, you know, she sort of says that it's her husband and it's like, well, this is good. But, and that I like too, because it's like, I wouldn't want her to stay with me either. Like, especially at this no. point. I mean, this girl is clearly like a mess. Like, in a way, she's a different play on the Susan character from Desperately Seeking Susan. You know, a free spirit, if you right. will. But a much different pitched version of that. And uh, sure, I just, I loved all of that. And then, like, even moving into moments where uh, Ed drops her off at an apartment. And it's this lavish apartment. She's supposed to meet, um, I think that guy was Iranian or not. Um, I can't remember the guy that was like at that weird casino right. place. And suddenly, I mean, to me, maybe this scene is where it felt the most like a thriller. But that's definitely a moment where Ed is going to leave. And right. that's like the perfect time in the movie for him to go, I've seen enough. I wonder is she really going to be safe up wherever she's going to? Like this woman I, that clearly like is a magnet for trouble. Yeah. You know, am I handing over, handing her over to someone that's not on level or something bad going to happen? And I just like that. And then man, like you move into that scene where he goes up to check and you enter this like lavish apartment and it's silent basically with the exception yeah. of TVs and you're moving in yeah. and out of room, and like it takes its time, you know. You're really walking around this place, and then you, you see the dead bodies, and then one of them's you know slit from ear to ear basically, and you find out it was Bowie. One's and like, did she not have like a broken leg or something? Like somebody is kind of like twisted up. Yeah, it was. It it's was pretty gruesome. Gruesome and like yeah, unexpected. I didn't know yeah. where they were going with that, and. I liked it. I mean, I did it. Yeah. It ends with this crazy knife fight, and there's the three of them, and like I thought the staging of that was cool and how they got out of that. And you open the elevator, and this dog immediately starts barking. And yeah. there's just, like, that's where I think, like, this movie excels compared to something else that it's going to do. And it'll be interesting to watch this movie, actually, I think, in connection to something like After Hours from this year, yeah, where it's sort of the same kind of setup in a weird way. But this is much more of a thriller and has those like little action pieces a little bit, but yeah, there's some good tension. And like a lot of it just comes from 
continually piling on like these layers of details so that it remains uh, hard to predict, I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know that they're going to end up together in some capacity by the end of this movie, right? Yeah, you know, right. if you've ever seen a movie, that's pretty clear. <laughs> but uh, still, like, I, I don't know. They did some, some cool stuff there. Although, I'll be honest with you, not, not that I want to jump all the way to the end. No, go ahead. Uh, or I, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, I, don't, I mean, that to me, actually, that was my biggest concern watching this was, are they going to fall in love by the end of this thing? Right. You know? So let's talk about the ending then. Let's do it. Well, I, I guess, yeah, I guess my thing is when I got to the end, and, and, and I, I can be pretty gullible for endings like this um, if the if, if I've enjoyed the rest of the movie. I'm not so on guard at that point. But, like, I, I felt like at the end of this movie, the ending of this movie could go either way. Like, the tone of this movie, yeah. I feel like the end of this movie could go either way. She is gone or he thinks she's gone, but she's not gone. And so, so it, it was, it was kind of a nice surprise. It wasn't a, an amazing surprise, but it was a nice surprise at the end that it was, it was kind of a good thing. I mean, but the other thing is like, they didn't, they didn't profess love for each other. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like, like they kind of got to the end and they were like, they, like if anyone's in love with anybody, he's maybe starry eyed over her mm-hmm. more than anything. But but at the same time, it's it's um, I don't know. It, it's it's the kind of thing where it does feel like they have it. It wasn't just a string of action scenes, and then at the end they're in love with each other. Yeah, like they've actually bonded over this time. Like like there's definitely a lot of scenes of tension, but there's a lot of scenes of them just sitting and talking, and sort of actually getting to know each other and stuff like that. So like at the end of this one, I feel better about them being together in some capacity than I have in other movies. I do too. And I think a lot of that is because of how the Pfeiffer character is. Like she's not just a damsel in distress. She's right. actually a participant in this whole thing because she, yeah. you know, she got the stones herself. I mean, she was part of that and part of the reason they came back over to this country. So like to me that works better than this is just like even like the Radon Chan thing. And it's not like her and Schwarzenegger hooking up in that movie. But no. for them to or like Rambo, like for the, you know, for them to have any sort yeah. of connection. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it yeah. has to be believable to me that the woman it would be capable of falling like forget who the guy is or what he's made out of or what his like personality or his moral well-being any of that what right. is this the kind of woman that will fall for somebody in 2 days right michelle sure. pfeiffer in this movie absolutely is that kind of, like she she is the kind sure. of woman that would make a bad choice <laughs> right and not that ed right. is a bad choice and not that she, again like i you don't get the sense from her that she's like in love with this guy or that that they're going to be married for the rest of their lives or anything like that. Yeah. But well, it's there a good might point, be something though. there, you know, I mean, she's definitely yeah. the kind of person that might, that would at least take a chance on that. And, and, you know, I mean, she well, was but, involved with Richard Farnsworth. Right. So, <laughs> right. Right. But uh, to, to bring up your, your, the, the example of commando as you were, I mean, you know, the end of that movie, it's, it's, it's presented to us that Radon Chong wanting to be a part of this family is a great idea. Yeah. In real life, if you had gone through all of that with no someone, chance. would you ever want to see that person again? Mm-mm. I mean, it's just like, sure, at the end he says he, he's never going to go back to this, but it's like, 
it seems like you're going to be in mortal danger every second of your life. Yeah. Like why? That 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 is a bad choice. Like if you told your girlfriends, I'm going to go with this guy. He <laughs> tore the seat out of my car and maybe drive around with him and I watched him murder like three people. Yeah. It's like, no, no, you cannot be with him. Um, so yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. Like she would make a this decision. It would, might turn out good, but it's she can't know it's good yet. Yeah. <laughs> so no. And um, uh, again, yeah. it, if she made a bad decision, it would not be the first. So um, right. yeah, I, I liked that. And and also like yeah, uh, you know, not to completely discredit the man in that situation, but I I I bought Ed's level of interest in her at that point as well. And also yeah. again, just sort of playing into a guy who's daily life uh did not turn out the way he expected or, or just is has taken a turn for towards the mundane and depressing and clearly keeping him awake at night so yeah. this is an alternative to that for sure uh going to mexico with this woman and a bunch of money is is definitely a change of lifestyle and yeah. uh one i would be interested in a sequel about possibly yeah. If you want to write it, Craig. Yeah, it would be interesting. What the hell happened to these two people? We still got everybody around, just about. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. Give it a shot. Now, also at the end of this movie, Craig, we got uh, Jonathan Demme's cameo, and Clue Gulliger mm-hmm. shows up there as a cop. I just wanted to take two seconds to point out that Clue Gulliger looks about 20 years older than he did in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which yeah. came out the same year. I don't know how that happened. It was just his hair. Yeah. He is. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but he's clearly <laughs> playing the old guy on the force in this movie, yeah. the old cop. And uh, he was playing the dead of a teenager in Friday. I mean, Night Run Up Street 2. So there you have yeah. it. Love it. You know, the only sort of thing, and I don't know, as this is really not that much of a deal, that I didn't quite care for with the Michelle Pfeiffer plot was, I, I wrote down it took 40 minutes for her to actually finally explain to Goldblum that they killed the guy at the airport and who that guy was because remember he didn't see that like he just like she jumps on his hood basically at in the airport parking garage i don't know like that to me is like it just felt like mm, if that happened maybe five ten minutes earlier um i think it would have worked a little better also it's because well we as an audience we know that a guy got killed like that's right you know we saw that happen so well, it, it it doesn't seem like a super consequential piece of information for Jeff Goldblum at that point. Because, yeah. I mean, these four guys chased her to his car and, I mean, were firing guns at them. Were they not? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so it, you know, to then find out, well, just before that happened, they killed a the guy. It'd be like, oh, uh, not very surprising. So I don't know why she would keep it from him. Yeah. Like, it, it seems like she would keep it from him so that he wouldn't get spooked and leave her you know, all by herself. But yeah, again, like he's, he saw enough for that not to be a, a huge, um, I don't know, de- determining factor. Yeah. And so, then, yeah, that is, that was kind of odd. Yeah. And then I, I think the other sort of odd choice, it isn't necessarily like, well, I guess it kind of has to do with her character's decision is when they do sneak to Richard Farnsworth's house, who is like this millionaire guy that I think she used to be involved with as a mistress of sorts. And uh, they access the property by going through this little secret tunnel of sorts, uh, service entrance, if you will. And 
I don't, I'm trying to think of another movie where I've seen anything like this happen before, and it's hard to think of one. That Michelle Pfeiffer, this is the middle of the day, she's like, oh, there's, gar- I don't know, they're guards, but it was gardeners, I think, were working. She's like, the gardeners will be here all day. We'll have to wait till night. Uh, I'm just going to take a, a nap. And so <laughs> he's like, what, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, we'll have to wait till dark. So that's, that, is, that is what happens. Like, she sits yeah. down in this little weird tunnel and takes a nap. And he, of course, I uh, like it because he's got insomnia. So I thought, okay, like she's going to fall, like try to fall asleep and he's going to sit there for two minutes. Like, are you, th- there's no way I'm sitting here until dark. We were going to go do something else. But no, it's like you cut to and it's like, it's nine hours later. It's dark now. Wake up. And he hasn't <laughs> slept at all. And uh, yeah. I mean, that's a weird choice. Like, especially that's, that's definitely like in the last 45 minutes of the movie. For sure. I mean, you're yeah. past the midpoint. How did you feel about that decision? That stick out to you at all? Well, uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Um, but uh, it's just just more movie to love as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it is like, I don't know. I don't dislike it. I just think it's it's really kind of a bizarre thing to, it's like, okay, it's, we're just going to like reset the timeline here a little bit. It's like we're going to take yeah. a breather. Yeah. And then it'll be dark and we well, can continue. Well, it's certainly... Yeah, I, I I don't know I don't know that it, that it served another plot purpose anywhere. Like it does kind of feel like they could have just like the script could have just as easily had them go up there and say, oh well, uh, you know it's it's three ten at three fifteen all the gardeners leave. We can go across then. Yeah. But instead, no. It's we're gonna sleep here for nine hours, and then we're just gonna cut that part out of the movie, and then it's nine hours later. Like I, I don't I don't I don't know exactly why. Yeah. Except except that maybe I mean the movie is called Into the Night. They got to keep it at night. Yeah. But it's gonna happen across a couple of days, so maybe they they just gotta wait till later. Yeah. Um, I mean it was it's kind of but, funny. Uh, it's kind of a funny little choice there. It is a funny choice, but then but then it's it all it is also as you pointed out like just just the fact that yeah she. She can very easily fall asleep in basically like a sewer tunnel, yeah. And uh, and he can't sleep anywhere, right? It's uh, it, it actually kind of still works with their characters. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was odd. <laughs> it's definitely odd. And then of course the ultimate payoff to that is like after everything's gone down and they've you know been interrogated by the cops and told that they have to stay in this. Uh, hotel room and not leave for 24 hours and they're going to be left completely alone and Michelle Pfeiffer takes a shower and she comes out she just has a towel wrapped around her and Goldblum's out cold and uh, you know it was I, I liked it. I mean I kind yeah. of anticipated that at some point he was going to fall asleep in this movie and that it would be satisfying and uh, I like that resolution there yeah me too um, what about just prior to that then just kind of like the big sort of uh, climax of this movie happens at the airport again when it yeah. you know it seems like they've done everything they can do to they got the stones they got half of the stones back to the woman the Iranian woman that wanted them was after them um, they left word of where the other half would be and they could get them now that once you know that Goldblum and Pfeiffer had rendezvoused at the airport and were about to get on a plane to Mexico A this is the only movie I, I can think of that I've ever seen where a plane was delayed or anybody taking a plane was delayed for a mechanical reason. And I'm just like, Oh, thank God. Cause that all, I mean like I get delayed every yeah. time I go to the airport and I was like, that's such a good, <laughs> such a good device. 
Of course, I think it's yeah. implied that the Iranian thugs perhaps had something to do with that delay when they get off the plane and those four guys are standing there. And, standing right there. Yeah, and then, uh, I don't know, I didn't anticipate the extent of the shootout in the scene that would yeah. follow because suddenly it's not just those guys. You've got this French guy um, that's been involved and after them and after the Stones and his two thugs – and then there's clearly undercover cops that are following this whole thing as well. And uh, yeah. there's some bloodshed in that moment, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, Landis gets yeah. a good death himself on mm-hmm. a magazine rack. But did that, I don't know, did that, A, did it surprise you? Did you see it coming or, or that kind of conclusion period? And then let alone this sort of level of violence that was uh, the way it was handled, especially with that suicide. Like uh, the guy that ultimately right. shot himself. Like, what did you think about all that? I mean, that that was the biggest surprise. And honestly, the 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 biggest thing about the suicide bit was, for me, is I couldn't figure out if that was supposed to be a joke or not. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Like, that, because like, was it was it a punchline to something? And 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 I I, I, I just didn't. I didn't because I mean, obviously, it was not portrayed like with you know like cartoon sounds or anything. <laughs> boop, but boop. um. <laughs> he's dead uh like it's <laughs> um but i mean yeah it's it's like pretty realistic but i mean what like what goldblum is saying to the guy up until then is like i don't know it's, it's kind of taking the guy into his own mind of of just having a like a worthless existence or yes something. yeah like what and are the you... guy turns the gun on himself like i didn't understand that bit at all like i didn't I did, did that did that was there a connection that you made there? No, and in fact, um, I didn't understand why necessarily he did it at all. You know, this is yeah. the basically the we're talking about the last thug standing here has got I mean 20 cops pointing and security guards at the airport pointing right. guns at him. He's holding Michelle Pfeiffer hostage. Uh the cops have proven that they are not at all afraid to shoot in the general direction of public <laughs> if Which if they, they can possibly take out a bad guy. So um, I thought the natural route out of that would just be to give yourself up at that point because you're not right. shooting your way out of there and all your other thugs are dead and wouldn't you rather just be alive and go to jail, I guess? I don't Maybe I'm just revealing something about myself here. But now he, he, he <laughs> you know, after, you know, Goldblum gets in a few good lines about how you know worthless he is as a human being, and uh, not you know in power just because he has a gun or whatever. The guy, yeah, points it at himself and shoots his brains on the wall and blood all over Goldblum and and Pfeiffer and uh, yeah, it's intense. I didn't, I did not see that being the resolution to that scene. I will say that much. No, although it is the tone that I was hoping for. Yeah. It was the kind of thing I was hoping for. Yeah. yeah. I, I do think you're right there. I mean, I, f- I feel like it maybe needed to build to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in some ways that also, I think excuses Goldblum and Pfeiffer sort of staying together or at least leaning upon each other after that, you know, I mean, just right. having gone through the intensity of that. Sure. But yeah, I I don't know. It it was it caught me off guard a little bit. And it's another one of those things where I can see like certain audience like not going into this 
expecting anything like that and that just being like, well, nope, I, this, I didn't like this movie. I sure didn't. You know, I can't believe they did yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bold choice in a, in a way. It is. You know, there's other moments of violence for sure. I mean, the thugs, they kill the actress friend in the ocean mm-hmm. while other people yeah. are watching. And by the way, the husband, I think that was Paul Mazursky, like, uh, Oh, he wasn't. A, right. He was not the husband. He's just basically the lover. Um, right. Boy, he he did not get up off that couch to go after her or try to save her when she took off running um, at the house there. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> was kind yeah, of... I didn't. I, there was uh, logistics of that that were kind of hard to understand. Yeah, but I liked but, it. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was like okay, like these guys mean business. They are going after those stones yeah, exactly. and ready to kill anybody else because. And there's some stuff with them that was strictly comedic before that. I mean, you got Landis getting a suit made in Beverly Hills and trying to run out of the store in just his, like, uh, underwear while he's wearing a suit top, you know, after spotting Goldblum. Um, And, like, the way that was played was definitely comedic. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Those those thugs work in uh, both genres there in this movie, which is always fun. They're the bridge. What else do you want to say about this movie, man? I, I don't know that I have anything else to say. I want to I want to save some surprises for anyone who might want to watch it. Man. But I, man, I I really recommend it. I I know there's that Blu-ray out there that I made. So I'm gonna see how much that is, because man, I I could definitely watch this a few more times. Yeah, and I also feel like in some ways, knowing the plot might not be a a bad thing going in a little bit because I I think that yeah. sometimes maybe helps with some of the tonal stuff, but. So much good here. I mean, even just like we said, like from a stylistic standpoint, from execution, from performance, for sure. If you're not mm-hmm. feeling the plot and the story a hundred percent of the way, I think you'll you'll still find enough to be satisfied and really interested in here. Uh, just a cool. It's a. I mean, like this is a movie that I just like. That's a cool movie, you know. Like where I feel like yeah. it's just saying that alone is like a fitting description for this thing. Yeah, I think so. You asked me to pay attention to post credits here. That's right. You want to talk about that thing? Did you Did you watch all the way to the end? I did. Yes. So, at the very end, there's a card that comes up, and this is not uh, unusual at all for a Landis movie. But for some reason, I feel like I've never seen it. I haven't either. This card comes up at the end of the movie that says, "As a has a painting of a trolley and some uh, flats, like a, it's a back lot." And it says, when in Hollywood, visit Universal Studios. Ask for Babs. Um, did you know anything about that going in? Nothing. About this uh, this card? No, I don't know. Uh, do you know what it means, too? Yeah, okay. so apparently it has to do with... Um, at the end of National Lampoon's... Uh, well, I've got it here. National Lampoon's Animal House's credits uh, calls back to something from the main part of the film, specifically the film's closing moments revealing the futures of facing... the futures facing members of the Delta and Omega fraternities. Right. Uh, Martha Smith's character of Babs is revealed to have become a tour guide at Universal Studios. Okay. So, basically, this was at the end of Animal House, and then he, as he likes to do, Landis put this at the end of Universal movies that he made. So it's the end of, uh, apparently it's at the end of Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, um, Into the Night, obviously, uh, and Blues Brothers 2000, if you haven't seen well, it Well, there you go. He is such um, a movie nerd, cool. isn't he? 
He is. He is. It's so fun to watch. Yeah. Like, it makes it really fun, at least for somebody like me anyway. Like, yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I think, you know, I listening to the TF episode, and I think you're, the quote that you read from Vincent Canby about, you know, this movie feeling like it was, you know, designed to be screened on the Bel Air director's circuit for just his friends or whatever. I mean, it seems like he's been doing that from the yeah. start, has it? I mean, even the See You Next yeah. Wednesday thing, like, I'm sure that was just, like, some crap he said to, like, some of his, like, filmmaker friends or whatever. And it's like, I'm, you know, I'm just going to put it in yeah. everything. Just, I mean, that's such an inside thing. Like, it's crazy. Um, yeah. Usually, I don't know. I don't know of a ton of, like, directors that have worked at this level that get that kind of stuff in there, to this degree, at least. No, it is kind of amazing. Yeah. So good on him. Good on him, Craig. Good for you. John Landis. Any general takeaway about Landis as a director from these two movies? I mean, any sort of like, I guess, is there, what are the similarities between these damn two things? Man, there's, there's not there's not a whole lot. Isn't that crazy? Um, I know. Like, I, I'm sitting here thinking yeah. like, I, uh, Dan Aykroyd is in both of them. That's about. <laughs> well, it's like, it's, it's like the, the humor, the humor, I definitely see where the humor feels similar. Kind of. Kind of. I, I mean, mean like like I mean the like the the four Iranians yeah. feels like something that could be in spies like us. You're right. But it's you uh, know yeah, so if I that, didn't yeah. know who directed these, would I make that connection? Probably not. But it is, you know, like I started watching American Werewolf in London the other night. No, oh, nice. And and that one is is really almost exclusively serious. Yeah. Like it, it has funny moments. Like the fact that I, I never thought about this before, but when we first see those two characters in the movie American Werewolf London, they're riding in the back of a truck with just tons of sheep, and it's just like that seems exactly right. Like yeah, they're they're just like <laughs> sheep to this guy. Anyway, but um, but it's very serious. So it's you know, his serious side is all through into the night, and like it feels very much like American Werewolf in London in those in those places like you can kind of see it but yeah it's like i don't know like i don't know if there's really like you 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 know if you're watching a spielberg movie from the shots you can feel that right i don't know if i could pick a landis movie out of a lineup if there was you know if like i had if i had no idea he did it and i didn't know about it before like i don't know what about you I I don't I wouldn't believe you until I saw the credit if like you just showed me these two movies and said they're the same director. Uh, I, I think yeah. I would have a hard time. I mean, unless you just like okay, there, there's John Landis in this movie, and sure. you're nerdy enough to pick up on the fact that there's eight million other directors in these two movies <laughs> acting. Right. Um, but beyond that, I don't think so, man. I I don't know. It, yeah. It's so cool. I'm glad that we did this and kind of stumbled into this because. Yeah, in many ways, they feel like complete opposite sides of, of a similar coin of this dude's brain. And uh, it's really interesting to watch him back-to-back like that. And uh, I don't know. We, I haven't done enough research, but I, you know, he might be the one and only dude that we could have done. Well, no, uh, John Hughes um, will be the other one that I know of who had two movies in 85. But you know, that, well, that doesn't happen think, very often, right? I think Donner... Had two movies. Did he? Okay. I think he's. Wait, did he do Lady Hawk? Man, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> if only, if only I the internet know. had some sort of. Eh. Uh, I'm not gonna look it up. Site, sort of an internet movie database. Mm-mm. Yeah. I think it's wrong. Yeah. So he, so he did time. those two, but, cool. but yeah, I mean, it's, it is, 
it's certainly remarkable that he got all that done. Yeah, and that they're this different. I mean, that to me is a big totally. Yeah, yeah. that they're this different. That's Agreed. that's pretty impressive and surprising. So, for me, it's a it's a new appreciation uh, for that guy or a renewed appreciation yeah. for him. And even yeah, spies like us. I think it's still a lot of fun to watch. I mean, like all the anything I leveled at it critically, I did find myself for the most part entertained and and easy easy to swallow that movie and enjoy it, uh, even if it doesn't yeah. hit every comedic bullseye that you want it to. Sure. So yeah, I think you should go watch both of them now that we've talked about them for almost two hours. If you're listening to this Make at home and you life. haven't seen it, go find them. They are easy yeah. to find at many an internet streaming outlet. Uh, you're probably going to have to pay for them, but they're out there. And mm. come back next time. We're going to tee up at least two, possibly more next week. I can't remember. Yeah. This will be out, yeah, right before Thanksgiving. So hope you have a very lovely holiday with your turkeys. Agreed. Cool. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Oh, endings. Bye.